Okay. Um, any questions? First, any missing blanks? You need, anyone needs anything? Okay, what do you need? Fidelity. The Lord is passionate about our fidelity. Suppose I could have just said faithfulness, but since big one was faithfulness, it was, seemed redundant. So. Inwardly. So the pairing is outwardly and inwardly. Outwardly and inwardly. It's declaration, it's proof. Ah, okay. Good question? Yeah. Give them the, the mic. Okay. Jake. Yes. It's not being, we're not projecting sound in this room, but it's being recorded. And for the eight people who listen to the podcast, hearing the questions is a real blessing. So just trust that it's on and you're being recorded. Okay. Just rock that mic, Dave. Just, you know. Did I have any resources on self-esteem? The mic's not on. Oh. <laughs> Push the button. Is it on now? There we go. If, is there a light on the mic? Okay. Yeah. Then we're good. Yeah. Okay. Um, Take two. Okay. Is that it? Okay. <laughs> I can't remember the, the all the questions. I, oh, I wrote it on my bulletin. I'm going to let somebody else ask a question okay. while I'm... Well, I can answer the first part. I can answer the first part. What, what, uh, it, oh, just, I'm sorry. What's interesting with the whole self-esteem thing is that uh, our culture is a relatively young culture comparatively. Like, take, take compared with Asian cultures. Um, and in a lot of the older cultures, you get clear evidence that they're aware of what a powerful force shame and honor are. We talk about shame cultures. And I'm not suggesting that they deal with it properly, but they at least recognize the huge place shame and honor have. And our culture has a very sort of simplistic notion, which is unless you're Hitler or unless you're guilty of a short list of terrible, terrible things, everyone should feel good about themselves all the time, everywhere. God didn't make our emotions to work that way. God, God, a proper emotional life is the right response to the right thing. So uh, I think we talked about this a few weeks ago in, back in James, that it's, it's about the, the classical view of education was training a student so that they would delight in the delightful, they would hate the hateful, they would, they would despise the despicable, right? And so depending on what I've done and how I've acted, my emotional state should correspond to that. And our culture is basically just no matter what you've done, feel good about yourself, which is not possible. Um, I, I don't want you to think I'm saying what our culture diagnoses as low self-esteem is nothing. It certainly is something. 
I don't know if that's the most helpful way to describe it. Biblically, it's hard to approach it that way. I would suggest shame and honor are very big biblical themes. The feeling of shame and dishonor and the feeling of honor. And now all of a sudden, you've got all sorts of Bible passages that speak about honor and dishonor and shame. And so that, not to go off on a huge side tangent about self-esteem, I would try to frame it in regards to the honor and shame language of the Bible which now you've got all sorts of texts, right, um, that, that can deal with things. So our culture generally, I, I think it was Jared Brewer showed me in a book he had for a class that um, the most recent psychiatric standards, in, in, at least in American, America, a low negative self-view is a sign of mental unhealth. And the point being, that doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter who you are. You could be someone who just betrayed your family and who did despicable and terrible things, and you should feel good about yourself. It was completely disconnected, in other words, from the life you lived. And so the challenge, and we don't like to see people feeling bad, is that there's a danger that some people who are forgiven, who are trying to be faithful, who are trying to please the Lord, are still walking around, and the devil is accusing them, and their own hearts accuse them, as First John says, and they just walk around feeling defeated and condemned. And we would have those people take heart and take comfort. There are other people who ought to feel shame for a season that they might come out the other side and be exalted by the Lord. We've already seen that in James chapter 1. So let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Let the rich brother in his humiliation. Right, So it's not a one-size-fits-all. Everybody needs to feel good about themselves or everybody needs to feel bad. Rather, based on where you're at, how your walk is doing, it might be wholly appropriate in one season of your life to feel immense shame and grief and sorrow. And, and, and sorrow, last, tears last for a night, but joy comes in the morning. And then the Lord exalts you and, and that's gone. So it's, it's not a one-size-fits-all. The Psalms make it clear there are seasons of weeping and lament, and there are seasons of rejoicing and seasons of exaltation. And I'm, I'm mostly critiquing our culture with it sort of one-size-fits-all, forget how you live your life, you should feel good about yourself, which no one really believes that anyway. You know what I mean? Um, it's not like that people really buy into that. But we say it, and we think if we say it enough, we'll believe it. Did you get yeah. your second half to your question, Dave? Yeah, I finally... Uh, okay. Found it. Um, okay. But I want to just add something. The, that self-esteem thing never did me any good. I used to have people when I was younger, they'd always say, uh, David, you got to understand, Jesus doesn't die for junk. And uh, I, uh, that, that didn't help any at all because I felt like junk. And, and mm. by reading the, what it said in the Bible mm. about all my sin, mm. and, you know, we discussed that together. Yeah. No, the, I'm, uh, and and uh, oh, I no. need something along the lines of the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And that God's grace, Jesus died for sinners. Right. Uh, I mean, he he <laughs> he didn't see anything in me. Right. And so that that's what gave me that's what gave me hope. Not this self esteem stuff because I I knew I didn't qualify. So when they told me Jesus doesn't die for junk, I knew I was junk. And I thought, oh well, I guess I'm 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 out of the out of the question then. Yeah, yeah. The way the way that people that buy into basically in, in the late eighties and early nineties, our our culture became convinced that the greatest 
the greatest evil that could befall a person is to have negative self-view. Um, that was just the worst thing. And some of the liberal theologians, like Robert Schuller, Crystal Cathedral, he defined sin as negative self-belief. I mean, in his definition, what is sin? Sin is to not believe in myself. Sin is not to think well of myself. And, and yes, on the other side, there are people who go about completely browbeaten, who think they're worthless. The, the biblical truth is a little more nuanced. God loves us, and we are precious to him. That's the, that's the part that self-esteem gets right. In spite of our sin, it's not because we're inherently lovely. That the, the miracle, the grace is we are precious to him. We're like the apple of his eye, despite how he finds us. Yeah. So, so there you can have the peace that your God doesn't view you as a piece of worthless trash. He views you in Christ as what he will make you. His love makes us lovely. He didn't find us lovely. He makes us lovely. So the part, the half of the self-esteem thing that he doesn't have is true is you don't want to leave someone thinking you're terrible and God thinks you're terrible. <laughs> Despite the fact that you're terrible, God loves you and has set his love on you and will fashion you into the image of his son and he won't give up on you. That, that would be the, a more nuanced truth. So, so um, yeah, no, absolutely, Dave. That absolutely. actually gave me hope when, when uh, the justification, when I understood justification, Jesus makes you completely perfect and holy in his mm. eyes right then and there. It, and uh, I confuse the sanctification process, still kind of understanding it, because I understand that he's still working in me to make me what I've been declared to be. Which, mm. which has been a little bit difficult to understand, but I'm getting there. But it, uh, it's so much better to have Jesus tell me I'm okay than to sit and say, oh, Dave, you're okay. You're, you're all right. You're fine. You're, right. it, no, amen. Uh, amen. And the last part of that question was... There's a third part. Okay. The very last part of it was uh, I, I keep hearing this stuff all the time uh, that uh, you're not a sinner anymore. You're, and, and you mentioned that. You touched yeah. on it. Yeah. And I was looking for some sort of reference or something because I hear that all the time. You're not a sinner. You're a saint. And, and so, uh, yeah. well, then why do we're I still We're coming sin? up on Reformation Sunday here at the end, October 31st. Our Reformation Sunday this, form, this, this year falls on Reformation Day. Um, Luther had a saying. Let's see if I get this right because it's Latin and I probably won't. Simul... Simul simultaneously sinner and saint and I will freely I said this message I'll freely admit the predominant language for believers is those who are sanctified called in Christ Jesus I mean so Paul opens his letter to the Corinthians who have got some serious problems Corinthians some of them are visiting prostitutes some of them are getting drunk at communion some of them are denying the resurrection some of them are suing each other you get married people living celibately you've got people who are in factions one-upping each other you it's, it's a mess and it, it, let me let me see read his greeting to them uh, he greets them not as hey losers uh, but he says to them hold on let me get there First um, Corinthians one he says to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all who in every place call upon the name of the Lord. So I will freely admit the predominant terms in the New Testament emphasize our positional nature. What Dave was talking about before is your position 
like we're Ephesians, we're raised with Christ, but I'm right here. Um, we've, we've been born again, and, and we've been declared righteous. So the New Testament emphasis is on our positional nature, no doubt. Some people go a step further and therefore say we shouldn't refer to ourselves as sinners because God calls us saints. Well, he doesn't always do that. James is at least one example. We're writing to the church. He's like, so when we've been sinning, when we're a sinner, I, mean, I remember getting a discussion with someone. I'm like, I'm a sinner. He's like, no, God calls you a saint. I said, do you sin? He said, yes. What do you call someone who sins? God says, I'm a saint. I'm just asking you, what do you call a person who, does, who sins? What do you call it? They're a sinner. So yes, I would freely agree that is not what we should be emphasizing always. That should not be our regular emphasis. But James at least gives us an example of it being valid in a category that, hey, when we've been faithless, woe that I am, wretched sinner that I am. Absolutely. Um, So, right, right, right. So it goes one step too far to be like, no, never call yourself, like, Okay. But some of the holiness movement and stuff try to say that it's, it's, it's messed up. So James has got no problem. Like, repent, sinners. Like, okay. James is keeping it real. Okay. Any other questions? Or should I tell you the story about how a sermon on the jealousy of God got me engaged? Okay. Okay. Um, okay. So Serena and I got engaged very quickly. Um, we got engaged in about six weeks. And... Um, I had met her at college, my first year at the Master's College, when she was graduating, and she, we, we, never, we never became really good friends. We had common friends, and I thought to myself, this is one of two women I've met in my life I think I might be able to marry. I mean, it's just, I'm, I'm an unusual personality type, and I need someone who I neither can steamroll, nor who's just going to like, <laughs> at me, you know, and... Um, and usually, most of the ones I was interacting with, they either steamrolled or they just hated me and were like, claws came out, you know. And so Serena was neither despised me nor let me, like, steamroll. So I was trying to get to know her better, and it failed. She went off, taught in Honduras for a year, came back to get her teaching credential, and um, the Lord had been working in my heart. And so when she bumped into me at the bookstore, I was not going to waste my second chance. And so we started hanging out, and very quickly... Um, we, we recognized where this was potentially headed. I mean, we were talking about marriage and like her stuff two or three weeks in because we, we weren't interested in dating. We weren't interested in, in, we were like, let's figure out if we want to get married. So we go to Grace Community Church probably about a, 18 years ago, like right about now. I want to go check and see when Phil preached that because it would have been in the fall. Um, and, uh, I had, I never actually proposed to my wife. This is why I didn't tell the story in the sermon because it's got all sorts of weird details. Um, I had told her if I want, if I could, I wanted to marry her. I didn't proposing would mean asking for a response. I'm like, look, I know it's way too soon for you to make up your mind. I just want to let you know if I can marry you, I will. So take your time, do whatever you need. So this is where we're at. Um, and, um, and so Phil's giving his example of his wife feeling possessive and she comes out of the service and she's like, you know, I kind of feel possessive of you. But I'm not sure if I should because we're not engaged. And I said, fair point. You can do something about that if you want. (laughs) Um, Yeah, thank you, Phil. Um, And so, no, she came out. She was just basically saying that she she viewed me as hers. And she saw me talking to someone. She's like, he's mine. But she recognized that while she was keeping her options open and not committing herself, that was an invalid 
thing. And I said, no, fair enough. I went and got a haircut and I came back and she'd prayed and talked to her dad and we got engaged. All because of a sermon on the jealousy of God. <laughs> Amen. Yeah. Well, her dad, we got, if you want to really press it, we got semi-formally engaged. Her parents, her parents, her parents gave her commit permission to commit to marry me, but they got the right to ratify or nix it upon meeting me. So we drove out to Boise and um, they ratified it at Thanksgiving. So... Um, Oh man, no, no, it was, it was, it was crazy, it was a crazy six weeks, man, it was a crazy six weeks, um, and uh, I, I don't know what she was thinking, but she married me, and here we are, um, no, uh, no, no, her parents were great, and driving out there was great, and, and they started, basically, they trusted their daughter, she was out of the house, but they also wanted, if they saw something really concerning, to be able to be like, Neh. so I mean, they weren't going to nix it over just, eh, his hair's a little too long, I mean, they, but they basically said, okay, okay, you can decide you want to marry him. You're out of your, our house, but we want to meet him, and we want the ability to, to you know, veto power. So, so we drove out, um, and uh, they didn't veto, and here we are. Okay, that's how, I got, that's how I got engaged by a sermon by Phil Johnson on the jealousy of God. So that's also why I don't forget it. You know, you remember things like that, right? Um, okay, question. Yo. Um, kind of, kind of goes with uh, Dave's uh, question about uh, um, difference between uh, self-esteem or, or or self-exaltation, and or what what is true humility? Mm. Um, that I, I, I've heard it said this way: humility is not thinking less of yourself; it is thinking of yourself less. Yeah. Um, Humility is the vehicle by which the grace arrives. Yeah. Um, we can, uh, it's best, we can ask God to humble us. I think it's best for us to humble, our, as James says, humble ourselves. Yeah. Um, we, have, we have a part to play in that humility right. uh, and, and some of the spiritual disciplines, the, the, the disciplines of putting off primarily uh, can help us to, with that humility right. um, to s- submit ourselves to God. Um, I guess the, re- I- the reason I was highlighting the fact, that I, I agree with you, humility is thinking of ourselves less. In this context, it's, it's resisting the temptation to defend ourselves and to cover our shame, I think, though. And that's where the humiliating aspect of humility mm-hmm. comes into play. You know, give, a, give a simple example. Somebody comes over to my, somebody, I have someone over to my house for lunch, and afterwards they pull me aside and I was like, dude, you're, you're kind of being a jerk to your wife. Now, if this person's a believer, they're saying this for my good. All I have to do, assuming they're right, is say, no, you're totally right. Repent. And I should expect them to be totally good with me, my marriage to be better, my relationship with God to be better. There's nothing but good in front of me if I can just be honest about it. But what wells up inside of me? I don't want to admit to that because I don't want to tell you that I, I, I don't think I was I don't think it was that bad I think it might be overreacting right 
and I start protecting myself. If I'll humble myself, like, no. The, the crazy thing is for, for Christians, we know there's free pardon available. We know there's free reconciliation, un- unmerited, unearned, unpurchased on our part, forgiveness and restoration. So we of all people should be like, yeah, dude, you're totally right. Thanks for calling me on that. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go make it right with my wife. Thank you. And I can be back where I need to be. And humility is willing to do that in this context. So in the context of confession in the basement, um, it's, it's being willing to, mm-hmm. yeah, I've acted shamefully. And I'm willing to feel shame in response to acting shamefully because that's the appropriate response to acting shamefully, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's my desire to protect myself from that that is what's going to lead to my demise, right? And that's why James links pride up with this. I, I don't, I don't want to be abased. But that's the way you get exalted. Yeah, but abasement's still not fun, right? So that's, that's the challenge, um, is will, will you be humbled now for a season so that the Lord would exalt you, or will you exalt yourself now and be humbled for eternity? Um, I mean, really, if you want to cast it in those terms, that's, that's what you've got. There are those who will be humbled now, and whom the Lord will exalt, and there's those who refuse to be humbled now who will be humbled later with no remedy. Yes? Oh, microphone. Resisting the temptation to... Resisting the temptation to defend and to justify ourselves. In, in one sense, confession, if you, if you want to think of it, I'll stand up to get some. If you want to think about it, confession is when you agree with God. It's being willing to, to go from the defense side of the courtroom and, and basically give evidence for the prosecutor. Yeah, you know, you're totally right. I did that. You know what I mean? Um, I, I totally was a jerk to my wife. I totally was angry and short with my children. You say that that's wrong. I agree that's wrong. Your Honor... Guilty is charged, absolutely. And then there's free, then, then the judge says, okay, but you're forgiven because of Jesus. We should, of all people, be willing to do this. Um, it's kind of like my kids. I tell my kids, I'll always forgive you when, you when you ask for it. Why did it take you three hours to finally admit you did something wrong? We could have been, we could have, I'm thinking from my point of view, we could have been hugging and reconciling three hours ago. But you had to tell me, no, you didn't leave your bike out, even though we all knew you left your bike out. And... Oh, now you're coming. Yes, I lied to you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and so, so we just delay that. And the desire, it's the desire not to be humbled, right? Because in the moment of confession, I'm, I was wrong. I was not wise. I was not good. I was not faithful. And pride doesn't want to humble itself. Um, it, it's crazy, I mean, it's, it's suicidal crazy because if we cling on to that, if we won't humble ourselves, we'll perish. But pride just says, don't, don't. Um, and, and for people who know that there's free pardon and grace available, it's, it's crazy. But the desire to, to not be humbled is strong in every one of us, you know? Um, it certainly isn't me. Um, so... Other questions? Yes. So this reminds me of in July, you talked about the first um, example of loving your neighbor as yourself was in Leviticus. What was that passage? Let's go there. Leviticus 19. We, I go here every chance I can get. 
because this is this is another one of these bread and butter passages. James four in in my mind for Christian living is bread and butter, and Leviticus nineteen is as well. Um, when we think of loving your neighbor as yourself, and Jesus citing the second greatest commandment, which interestingly enough is not found in the Ten Commandments, but Leviticus nineteen. In Leviticus 19, what does loving your neighbor constitute? And it's the classic, don't do this, do this. The put off, put on. We define what we're talking about both positively and negatively. So we're going to see, don't do this, don't do this, but do this. So Leviticus 19, 17 and 18. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So don't hate. Don't bear a grudge. Don't take revenge. Love him. Go talk to him. And yet in my pastoral experience, that is the thing people have the hardest time doing. And so it's, it's I get why it's the second greatest commandment. Like, has somebody offended you? Has somebody upset you? Has somebody wronged you? Has, you find yourself either becoming embittered. And so here's the working back. When I find myself becoming embittered towards somebody, when I find myself angry at somebody, I need to go talk to them. And if I don't, I'm not loving my neighbors myself. If I don't, I'm hating them. And so it cast in the terms Leviticus 19, here's love and hate. Go talk to them or you're hating them. And so this, this becomes really critical for maintaining peace and unity in the body because if, if we're not talking to each other when, when offenses and sin happens, we are going to begin to become embittered. We are going to begin to become hating. Hating, again, not, make some distinctions here, not murder. Murder is I want you to die. Hatred, in the example where Jesus exemplified what loving your neighbors yourself, were the Levite and the priest who walked by. I can't be bothered. It's going to be messy. I get blood on me. It's going to slow me down. And the good Samaritan sees his neighbor hurt and goes and takes care of him. So I see sin in somebody. I see something wrong in somebody. I, it's going to be messy if I go try and talk to him about it. That's what loving your neighbor is. And if you don't, you will, the way God designed your heart, you will begin to despise them or become bitter towards them or get angry at them. And you're hating your neighbor. So, yeah, Leviticus 19 again and again and again and always of what we need to do to go. And this is Jesus. If a brother sins, go talk to him, right? I mean, and, and we tell her, oh, they'll never listen to me, you know. I think you just said they're not a believer when people say that to me. Like, oh, they'll never listen to me. You've judged their heart such that if someone comes to them with a loving admonition from Scripture, they won't listen to you. Ultimately, we discipline such people. Ultimately, we tell such people you don't know the Lord. That's, that's a pretty big judgment you've just made about them. I, I, now I know you need to go talk to them because clearly you've been judging them in your heart, right? Um, so, so, yeah, anyway, sorry. That made me think of another question. Oh, sorry. okay. So does this apply to non-believers as well that no. you should? Oh, Non-believers okay. is very, very, we don't have an absolute obligation to go talk to non-believers about their sin. Um, you may want to do that. It may be appropriate. This is specifically about believers in the family of God. So, um, and really specifically, I'd say within a local church. There are plenty of, because in the local church, one of the things membership does 
is, and we get this from the, from the New Testament, it's, it's an acknowledgement that we all accept each other's profession of faith because we're discipling and watching over each other's profession of faith, right? So your sanctification is my business. My sanctification is your business. We're all, in a way that I'm not giving an account for and watching over the sanctification of people meeting right now in Indianola. And so I meet some of these people, and like they say they're a believer, and I have no reason to think they're not a believer, but I also don't have that firsthand knowledge. So, you know, if I see somebody like Joel Olstein, I don't need to go, like, I have to go talk to my brother. I, I don't know where he's at. I don't know what he thinks. I mean, I've got some idea what he thinks, and it concerns me. <laughs> but I don't have any obligation to go seek him out and, like, try to correct him. If I saw him in an airport or something, I'd hope I'd try to strike up a conversation. But I do with people in this body. I, I do here. So that obligation, that responsibility is first and foremost within the church, within a local church particularly. And in dealing with unbelievers, I, there's a whole lot of different principles and, and wisdom that can come into play. Because first off, with unbelievers, we don't have a common authority. So what am I going to appeal to? I can try to appeal to fairness. I can appeal to the rules of our employment or our employer, the rules of our country, the laws of our country. But we don't have an objective standard to even start with agreement on. Um, and there's a sense in which what do, I expect, what do I expect dead, blind worldlings to do? I mean, I, I'll say to Serena every now and then, oh, no, the Canaanites are being Canaanites. Like, what do you expect the Canaanites are going to do? Um, so there... It's, it's not about, I need to evangelize those people. I need to witness the gospel to those people, not tell them they bugged me about X, Y, and Z. Jim. Along those lines, aren't in a sense, if you don't approach an unbeliever, well, they're not going to believe the gospel. Aren't you, in a sense, making a judgment on them? Oh, and God. You're playing God. 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 26. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those from opposition. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. First I'm not Corinthians, saying being confrontational or contentious. I'm saying, but if, if, you're, if you're hesitant to share truth with someone because you go, ah, they're not, not going to believe it anyway. In a sense, that's a judgment on them. Oh, yeah. And you know, God, first, first Corinthians 3, one man waters, one man plants, God makes it grow. Well, the watering is Apollos' ministry to the believers, but the planting was Paul's church planting evangelism. So that means in Acts, when Paul goes to Corinth and preaches the gospel, he's planting, God makes it grow. So what you're, what you're saying is your heart's too hard for the gospel to save you, and I know God's mind, and he's not going to save you. He's not yeah, going to open your eyes. Yeah. Who are you, oh man? It gets back to we want to be results-oriented. We want to, I'll do it if, you tell, if I know it's going to work. I'll go talk. I mean, I, this is what gets me with that. The reason why I have 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 26 memorized is I will, the Lord, bring it to mind. I don't enjoy confrontation. Um, but what frequently will happen when I'm, when I'm nervous about a conversation with somebody is, a, is an internal monologue like this. Jeremy, if an angel from God appeared and said, hey, this brother or sister you're going to talk to is going to hear what you're saying, they're going to thank you, they're going to repent, it's going to be wonderful, would you be at all hesitant to go talk to them? Nope. So all my anxiety and all my concern is rooted in the fact that I think I know it's going to happen, and I think God's not going to give grace, and I think they're not going to listen to me. And that's none of my concern. God says, why don't you just go be faithful? 
And once I realized that all my fear is really just rooted in my certainty, they're not going to listen. And now I'm really usurping my area of responsibility. God says, I determine if they listen. You just go be faithful. Like, okay. So that's, that verse will oftentimes, like I'm responsible. I'm not responsible that people listen. I'm responsible that I'm kind, patient when wrong, gently correcting, enduring evil. That's what I'm responsible for. And so I can do that perfectly and they don't listen. And I can do that corruptly and God could still give them repentance. I'm going to be judged on my faithfulness, not on the results. Who's got the mic now? Who's, oh, Don. Uh, you mentioned uh, to turn from our double-mindedness uh, and sin. Uh, a good companion, uh, passage for that is Psalm 80. It talks about turning. Uh, it's mentioned uh, like four times. Uh, turn us again, O God, and cause thy face to shine, and we mm. shall be saved. Turn us again, O God of hosts, and cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. Return, we beseech ye, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven, and behold, and visit us this vine. And then the last verse. Turn us again, O God, O Lord God of hosts. Cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. Psalm 80 or 8? Eight? 80. 80. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. I was looking at eight, and I'm like, I think that sounds like 80, uh, um, but it's 80, right? Eight zero? Eight zero. Eight zero. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Other thoughts, questions, complaints, haikus? I really want someone to have a haiku. I know. Right? Well, you keep saying that, and nobody does it. You want someone to have a haiku? haiku. No, I can't. Oh, I do haikus. <laughs> okay. I, I got I got some stuff, um, so let's let's go to uh, let's go to ooh, oodles of texts here. Let's go to Jeremiah three. Again, we went here last week, but um, Okay, um, in Jeremiah 3, we get one of the many, I thought I had a teacup here, but I'm not seeing it. Okay. No, I'm fine. Uh, if I have any more caffeine, I'll just die. Um, so, Ezekiel, we looked at Ezekiel 16 last, t- last week in the ABF, and, and it's vivid picture. Here, the, the point I'm trying to highlight is only professing Christians are guilty of the worst, or can be guilty of the worst type of hypocrisy. Um, the worst place, I mean, think about this. Who is Jesus most angry with? Religious people. Pharisees, right? Not all of those people. People are religious. Um, John MacArthur once said, where's Kingry? He'll like this. He's not here. Um, God is... Okay, in reverse order, most people will admit their sin, by which the obvious sin, the guy who swears, yeah, okay, I mean, most people will recognize the sinfulness of their sin. Few people will recognize the sinfulness of their good deeds, and virtually no one will recognize the sinfulness of their religion. And yet, Jesus 
is angry at it in reverse order. He's most angry at sin and religion. Next, he's angry at self-righteous good deeds done corruptly. And it's not that he isn't angry at sin. So like you look at the people in the Gospels, it's the tax collectors and sinners who Jesus is calling to repentance. He's not giving them a high five and saying you're good just the way you are. But his harshest words are against people who are self-righteous who can't recognize the sin in their good deeds. And certainly the harshest against the Pharisees and the Sadducees and those who have made a false religion for themselves. Um, So with that, Jeremiah 3, 6 through, um, 6 through ooh, 17 or so. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, have you seen what she did, that faith that's one Israel? And so remember, when you're dealing with Israel and Judah, you're dealing with the ten northern tribes and the two southern tribes. Israel, how she went up on every high hill, under every green tree, and there played the whore. And I thought, after she's done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I had sent her away to decree a divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. For Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense only. And the Lord said to me, Faithless Israel has shown herself more treacherous more righteous than treacherous judah so you've got two women both leaving their husband one doesn't pretend to do anything but that and and she just goes off into the sunset leaves him the other comes back in pretense and the one who comes back and the one who left and didn't even pretend is more righteous than the one who came back in pretense there's, there's a sense of honesty when somebody abandons their profession of faith because they want to go indulge in whatever they want to indulge in. I want to go party. I want whatever it is you want to do. There's an honesty to that that you, we can respect that's not, that's not there with somebody who wants to have their cake and eat it too. Somebody who wants to harbor their idols and come. And so that's the worst place to be. That's, that's the most guilty position to be in. And so that's why I, I want us to take this call seriously. Because even here, if you keep reading, go and proclaim these words towards the north. Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt that you've rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreign, foreigners under every, high, every green tree. That you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord. I am your master. I will take you, one from a city, two from a family. I'll bring you to Zion. And I'll give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land in those days, declares the Lord, they shall not say, the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come into mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord. And all the nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. So even here, after he's declared Israel more righteous than Judah, he's still, if you'll return to me, with your whole heart and not in pretense, the Lord will receive his bride back. So how tragic to deal with this lightly, to not listen to the call, and 
to miss such abundant grace. Okay, we got 10 minutes. Questions, thoughts? Nope, up front here. So is, um, I'm reading about Jeroboam and Rehoboam and kind of keep this straight. Which one's Israel and which one's Judah? I be, okay, I got to remember. It's alphabetical. Um, is Jeroboam the uh, son of Solomon or is it Rehoboam? Okay, so Jeroboam's north, Rehoboam's south. So Rehoboam is Solomon's son. And Solomon's son listens to his young counselors who say, my pinky yes. is thicker than my father's loins. He disciplines you with thorns. I'll discipline you with scorpions. And the ten northern tribes say, later, and they take off. And Jeroboam is the ruler of the ten northern tribes. And the, man, and the prophet goes to him and says, hey, look, if you'll be faithful, uh, the Lord will establish you. But he's got a problem. Faithfulness to the Mosaic Covenant means three times a year all your people go south to Jerusalem. If my, and he fears if my people go three times a year down to Jerusalem, eventually their hearts will return to the Davidic king. So he makes an alternate worship site on Mount Samaria. He makes the uh, is it brass bulls, bulls of brass that they worship there. And that's where they get judged for, their faithlessness. So all the kings in the north are bad. Most of the kings in the south are bad, but there are some exceptions. But pretty much without exception, all the kings in the north are bad news. And that starts with Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Rehoboam being Solomon's son, Jeroboam just being a dude. Okay. Well, um, when I've been reading, some of the tribes are called Israel and some are called the tribes of Judah. Do you yeah, remember so which when, is when which? When that distinction is used, Israel yeah. means the ten northern tribes. Oh. Judah would be Judah and, and Benjamin. So that's Rehoboam, Ju- yes, Judah. Yes, and, yes. Okay, I'm going to write that down. Yeah, Thank yeah. you. So when you see Israel and Judah being used together, it's the ten in the north and the two in the south. That's what's being referenced. Um, yeah. Yeah. So like in Jeremiah 3, Israel's the ten northern tribes. And the, the reference to sending away the decree of divorce is Shalmaneser V coming along and gobbling them up, and they just off they go. They don't come back. Um, stragglers will come back. I mean, the Samaritans, this is, and again, part of, you want to think of part of, the, of, of Judah's pride this is why the Jews despised the Samaritans. Because they saw the judgment of God for their faithlessness. And you had an alternate worship site. And you don't rec- the Samaritans didn't recognize anything but the books of Moses as scripture. Because the books of Moses don't tell you where the location is. They just tell you there will be a location. And so they, they just kept the, uh, the Pentateuch. And even though Jeremiah tells them, hey, guess what? You guys are worse than them. This is why the Pharisees would walk hundreds of miles out of their way to not set foot on the dust of Samaria. They thought they were better than them. And right here, like, no, guys, the the northern tribes are less guilty than you. Because the northern tribes don't make a pretense at worshiping me. Um, So you think of just how self-righteous and proud the Pharisees were um, when they should have known better. But yeah, when Israel and Judah are used in the same context, that's the reference. It's the ten north and the, and the south. Or to, to Jeroboam in the north and, and Rehoboam in the south. Yeah. Okay. okay. Five minutes. Anybody? Bueller. Oh. Tim. 
So on that last comment, would the Sadducees follow or fall into that same guilt? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. The Sadducees, the distinction as best as we can make between the Pharisees. So you think of the different ditches. The Pharisaic ditch is the one we're probably most likely to fall into. The Pharisees were, were a, a Bible, it was a Bible reading group. Get the Bibles back in the towns. The Pharisees started grassroots, everyday folk, merchants. They weren't super rich, generally. And it was all about calling Israel back to God. The one thing Israel seems to learn in the Babylonian captivity is they no longer mess around with overt idolatry. That seems to be gone. They no longer... The the, the Babylonian captivity seems to cure Israel of overt idolatry with graven images. Um, And so the Pharisees... Uh, their mentality was we want to make sure we never get disciplined like that again. I mean, again, I'll make some comparisons here. The Pharisees built Bible schools in every town. I mean, in its foundation, it was great, I'm sure. Hey, why don't we get Torah schools in every community? Why don't we make sure every community has got a copy of the Torah so that all the people can hear it, so they can learn to fear God, so we won't ever get to a situation like we did where we lost the law and Hezekiah has to find it. I mean, just how bad is it? Like, we lost the law. Oh, here it is. We forgot what it said. And so they start these Bible reading programs, these Bible schools. It's great. The sad... Make, no, that's, that's the ditch. No, that's exactly the ditch we've got to be careful of. Because the Sadducees, they're the liberals. They don't believe in an afterlife. So the only value they have for religion is here and now. Which is, I think, by and large, what liberalism does. It's, so it's all about you know, helping the poor and all about um, you know, helping different oppressed peoples, which is a good thing and all, but they're not really interested in salvation because they don't think anyone's not saved. They think everyone's going to heaven and everyone's fine and everyone gets there. And so they're really just, at its best, social religion is about trying to make the world a nicer place to go to hell from. At its best. Well, they wouldn't think it that way. And that's the Sadducees. No afterlife. There's no, that's why they're sad, you see. The Pharisees are the literalists. The Pharisees are the Bible memorizers. They've got the scripture memory programs. They've got the Awana programs. They've, they're all, that's them. That's, that's our ditch to make sure we don't fall in. It's not to say that just because we do similar things, we are them, but we're not likely to fall into the error of the Sadducees. The ditch we've got to watch out for is that Pharisee ditch. Um, that's... And it's good to recognize different theological backgrounds have different dangers, and that's going to be ours. The closest people who got corrupt, when, it, when Bible reading groups make our country love God again, goes rotten, it goes rotten like the Pharisees. And so that's what we've got to watch out for. Make sure we don't go rotten like them. Um, and Jesus was mad at the Sadducees, too. It's not just the conservative legalists, but the liberal legalists, too, get, get both barrels as well. But... Um, yeah. Any other questions, thoughts, complaints? Haiku. So you had a chance, Natalie. You did, and you squandered it. Okay. Yes, sir. Let's hear it. I've heard of haiku. Oh. Oh. I'm not sure I'm qualified to participate. I've been waiting years for you to ask me. I I I bow before your. A rhetorical and 
Okay. Okay, on that note, we will see you all, God willing, next week.